0: Hi, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I am talking to Ellen Lupton, and it is the final episode in my June series interviewing the professors from MICA who have advised this thesis project. Ellen, of course, for designers, likely needs no introduction. She's a director of MICA's graduate graphic design program and the senior curator of contemporary design at Cooper Hewitt. She's also the author of some of the classic design books like Thinking with Type and Type on Screen and co-author of the excellent Graphic Design, The New Basics with Jennifer Cole Phillips. For the last two years, Ellen has been my professor and advised my thesis project and this podcast. So a few days after graduation, I finally sit down with her to talk about her own work as a designer and writer and teacher and curator, how the design industry and discourse has changed over the course of her career and how she thinks about her audience and writing for design in a way that's accessible and clear without oversimplifying it. Uh, When I decided I wanted to go to graduate school a few years ago, I had applied to a couple schools I was interested in and honestly wasn't sure where I wanted to go until I had a Skype interview with Ellen where I felt like she immediately got what I was interested in and why I wanted to go back to school. And when I hung up from that call, I knew that MICA was where I wanted to study. And I think I definitely made the right choice. Two years later, this experience has been everything that I wanted it to be. I was given tools to think about the intersection of design criticism and practice in my own career. I got to meet some incredibly talented students. And as you saw over the last few weeks, study with some some very smart professors. And perhaps most importantly, I got to make a podcast for my thesis. And it's turned into this project that will continue past my graduation. And I'm just so thankful for everyone at MICA for the platform to start this. And I'm really excited to see where it goes next. It's so fun to get to talk to people who are doing the kind of work I'm interested in. And Ellen obviously very much fits that. And so I hope that you enjoy my conversation with the great Alan Lopton. The one part that I do just kind of want to start with your background, just to kind of set the stage for this other thing, these other questions that I have, is what came first for you? Was it, did you, when you were you know in school did you see yourself as a designer first or a writer first or how did those things come together
1: sure. so I went to Cooper Union which is an art school and yeah. I went there to become an artist okay and then I discovered design which I didn't know about yeah and as I discovered design I discovered this linkage between design and writing and that to me was the revolution that that typography in particular was this link between writing and visual art. And I come from a family that's all English professors. okay, okay. And I have a sister who's a very, very gifted scholar of English okay. literature, who's my identical twin sister. And we kind right. of made a deal in high school that she was the writer and the scholar and I was the artist. Okay. And That was cool because I was a terrible student and she was like 4.0, whatever. I was like, not a good student in high school. And so that seemed like a fair deal, Mm -hmm. but I was a good writer too. And somehow I got, I wasn't allowed to do that. And when I discovered typography, it was suddenly a way for me to take charge of the thing that I wasn't supposed to be doing. Right. And in fact, to take charge of the very content that she was exposing me to, which was critical theory. Right. So she was at Hopkins, you know, and that was where yeah. like Jacques Derrida was first published in the US. It was like the hotbed of yeah. this okay, literary makes... criticism. And so she was exposing me to that. And I was finding that a lot of that philosophy and critical thinking was related to architecture and the page and the word and the space between letters. And, and that to me, that was it. That's that they came together.
0: uh, I I just have one other question that actually like kind of explains a lot of the Mm. work that you've done since then in a lot of ways, but I'm interested, you know, at Cooper union and, I talked to Abbott already, and I'm not sure the order of when these will come mm-hmm. out, if his will come out first or not, but was that kind of connection something that a lot of people were thinking about at the time, or what was the, the design That kind of was was not,
1: not a lot of people in my circle were doing that, so Abbott and I were doing it, and I kind of brought to our relationship the critical theory and yeah. philosophy and... I was sort of channeling that through right. my sister and all her yeah. all that she had access as like a professional in that area. And he was much more attuned to like what was happening in the art world and what okay. was happening yeah. in architecture. And together we we as students at Cooper sort of that exploded for us. And we kind of brought that together as a team.
0: Yeah. yeah. And then so what what's always been interesting to me about your work and your whole career is that those that kind of very academic side and the critical theory side and the philosophy side has always been very much connected to making things. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I've you know as I've been here for the last two years and have been reading a lot of design history that I hadn't come across before and finding all these obscure things that you had written. In academic journals and things that I had never come across before, and so I'm interested in the evolution of your writing uh, from something that's very academic to something that definitely appeals to a much more general audience. And I don't mean that judgmentally at all.
1: all. No, I'm. I actually think that's a
0: really. Good thing?
1: Yeah, well, so a lot of the, those critical writers, you know, I'm thinking especially of Foucault yeah. and Barth and Baudrillard and Lyotard, they yeah. wrote in an obs- kind of obscure yeah. manner, which was the fashion, but they were read by a very wide audience, you know, especially Roland Barth. Yeah. And, yeah. Know, he wrote for the newspaper. Yeah. So their work wasn't strictly academic, it was like reaching out beyond that to be what was called a public intellectual and so that's really interesting to me okay and but so when I was first starting to write I I really wanted to write like an academic because that was modeled for me by my heroes including my PhD mother and my PhD sister and this is they, they modeled a kind of professional writing, <laughs> but also opened me to this um, more critical, open view of what writing can okay. be. Um, so yeah, I kind of learned how to write academically, but I always wanted it to not be obscure. I always wanted people to understand it. And so the yeah. more I learned how to write, the more I became conscious of being more clear and more direct.
0: So that was always something that you were interested in was kind of making it something that was accessible to always, as wide a audience as possible. Always wanted to
1: be accessible. Okay. Even though early on I did more kind of footnoted. I was yeah. in an art history PhD program for a yeah. while. I really had to write academic things and and I love that. I re- I still yeah. read a lot of academic writing. I respect okay. it a lot. So I but n- now I'm really committed to writing in the clearest way possible and that's become, you know, a philosophy of
0: mine. Yeah. Do you I'm i I'm, I'm curious about I've this is a kind of two-part question. I'm curious of when you're writing who your imagined readers are. And then the second part is who are the people that buy your books. And the reason I uh, the reason I asked that is that I found in doing these interviews the people who seem to listen to this the most are people who are involved in education whether it's students or professors. People who are in academia. Yeah. And you know there are a lot of professional people listening also, but I find it interesting that still that's kind of the audience and I'm curious if
1: yeah, that's I mean, just kind so of So a lot a general... of my books are really written for emerging designers, which okay. are students or young designers, um, a lot of people in the digital design realm who don't necessarily have the same formal education. Oh. So there's young people for books like Thinking on Type and Type on Screen and Graphic Design Thinking yeah. and The New Basics, these are yeah. not written for Polish air. Right, They're written for people who wanna get better at doing design. But then my museum books are, you know, for, I'd say a more intellectually elite. Okay. But they sell a lot small, fewer number of copies too. So the museum books are more traditional, scholarly. Yeah. And luscious. They're not handbooks. They're more, you know, they're museum books that have to be kind of um, elegant and formal and serious.
0: I hadn't thought about this actually before, and so this is a question that I wasn't planning on. On asking but you know you said you're not writing you know this is not a book that's for Paula Sher or something like that what what are the types of books that somebody like that or even I mean I guess you you know who who's writing the books that are oh, for somebody like you the books that I read? You. Well I yeah. just got
1: this book um, Fire Signs, A Semiotic Theory for Graphic Design oh.
0: I've never heard and of it. And I don't know. Is this new?
1: Yeah, it just came out, so I got this from our library. Um, I just read an incredible book by Mark Wigley and Beatrice Columbia. Are we human? Are we human? I just
0: read it too. Oh I mean, that's
1: fantastic. That's so and that good. is incredible writing. Yeah. And it is scholarly. It has yeah. footnotes in the back and it's all very professional. And I believe in that. I do footnote my work or yeah. include yeah. sources and in some kind of system. I love system. that book so much. But that's a great book. So I read a lot of stuff like that that is um, high level for people okay. in the profession.
0: Do do you see this is another question that I wasn't planning on asking you, but it's kind of connecting these mm-hmm. last two questions. Do you see part of your job as as a writer, as a curator, and as a educator to take that kind of high theory that's impenetrable in a lot of ways and kind of remold it or you know communicate it in ways that's what
1: scholarship is is that it draws on other writing yeah and that as a curator you need to be attending to what are designers doing in the field yeah but also what is the conversation like what's going on and how to bring those things together Mm -hmm. into a story told through artifacts yeah yeah, basically and so you might be reading scientific things as well as right philosophy and design criticism design journalism and so you're you're not making something out of nothing right and you know most writers are making something out of the stew of the contemporary yeah,
0: moment. Yeah, I always think of like, um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell gets a bad rap for oversimplifying his story. You know, taking a lot of science things and, and simplifying them down. And I read an interview with him once where he just kind of said, you know, the scientist who did that study is not the audience for my books. And I actually think there's something nice about that idea of true. taking the stuff and giving it to another audience who otherwise wouldn't have seen it. And in a lot of ways, that's kind of
1: exactly. what a lot of your
0: books are Exactly.
1: Like. I want designers to care about critical theory yeah. and about you know, neuroscience or yeah. gestalt psychology, you know, all these topics that relate to design mm-hmm. but need to be translated and made relevant and made right. into a story right. that we can all get. You know?
0: So how does that, the, the work of yours that I know the least amount, is Cooper Hewitt and, mm-hmm. and your curatorial work. And I've, I've seen your shows and I know kind of the end product, but I don't know kind of your process there or, or what even your goals for, you know, kind of staging an exhibition mm-hmm. are. And so I kind of have just those same questions that I just asked you, but right. in a museum context, like who, who are you expecting to come see well, a show? Well, in a
1: museum, you have, A very very broad audience. So unlike somebody buying Thinking with Type, where I have a pretty clear idea, right, what someone needs from a book with that title, and a museum, people are coming to be entertained. Mm -hmm. They're coming as journalists themselves, or as expert audiences who want to be surprised and want to learn something new. They're coming as the um, the the companion of somebody who has a professional interest right? and they're patiently right. um, standing there. And sometimes I put something in that I know is for the guy yeah, who's yeah. there with someone who
0: yeah, yeah. came
1: to see the ball gown. right? And this person might- That's always my
0: girlfriend when I bring her to all the design shows that she doesn't care about. Um, so who, how do you, I don't know. I don't know exactly how to ask this, but how do you how do you kind of like think about collecting objects that will appeal appeal to people at that whole level? You know, how do you kind of bring those together so it's not dumbed down for the... Well, it's
1: almost not. It's not the objects, but what you say about them. Oh. So you so the objects should should be have some interest to everyone. Yeah but how do you present them? How do you interpret them? How much depth mm-hmm. do you support them with? Because um, some people want to read a lot yeah. and they want to know a lot of detail and some people just really want to have a good experience that is intuitive just from walking through a space. Right. And so it just it's a lot like writing a book, but you're you're creating something where you know that no one's going to look at every single thing. Yeah. And how are you going to make choices that helped people? How, how do...
0: I mean, I've, I've watched you over the last two years and, and how you kind of have this schedule of kind of when you're teaching and when you're writing and when you're doing museum things. And they're, you know, these kind of designated times but I'm interested in how those actually overlap and relate to each other. Um, you know, does, how does a show that you're working on filter into things that you're well, teaching? Well, it totally
1: relates. And so as a teacher, I always think that's where I get my ideas. from it's teaching. From, teaching and yeah. from being around young people who are making things and doing courses like the theory class yeah. or my design history class. Yeah where I have to constantly be delivering uh, an accessible story about the avant-garde, about experience design, about neuroscience.
2: Right, right, right. (laughs) And that
1: by, by engaging with that at the level of a college teacher allows me to then really bring that into my curating in yeah. a way that if I were only studying like objects and the right. origins of objects, as many curators have to, because yeah. that's what their mission is. Um, so to me, they really connect. And now I'm doing a book with Cooper Hewitt on storytelling. Oh, right. Like Cooper Hewitt's publishing that comes completely out of my mm-hmm. teaching mm-hmm. and my, my belief
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: that designers have to, Deliver an experience to people.
0: I, I have another re- weird question, and, and I'm sorry that I keep asking you these questions that I had not planned, but you're you're actually like bring up a lot of things that I had not thought about before. When you're at like the, the very, very origins of curating a show, um, is it is it an object that comes first? Like do you see something in the collection and think we're building something around this? Or is there like an idea uh, or a theory? My shows
1: all start from an idea. Okay. I'm really not an object person. Okay. I love that was collaborating my thought. with people who are yeah. more so. So I've been doing shows with a younger curator at Cooper Hewitt, Andrea Lips. Oh, yeah. So we did the beauty show right. together, and now she's collaborating with me on a show called The Senses. Oh, okay. And um, I love working with her because... She brings her eye that sometimes I feel I don't have. But all my shows start with an idea. Okay. And that may be unusual. Yeah. (laughs) But I think that Walter Benjamin show at the Jewish Museum, I love seeing that as an example of curating. And that came with the idea.
2: Yeah. Yeah. What
1: if we took the Boulevard project Mm -hmm. and found examples of contemporary art that reflected those themes? Yeah. And then you fill in the blank. So I I love that, I think it's very brainy and that's how I like to work. But different curators have very different uh, impetus behind their work. How,
0: how long, I have another two part question. How long are you kind of thinking about an idea or a subject or a, a thing before it starts to turn into something? And then how do you know if it's, oh, this is a book, or this is a lecture, or this is an exhibition. You know, do well, the, you think about yeah, it in those terms? The
1: lectures usually come first. Okay. Uh, and then they become, the, and it might be a lecture at MICA for our students, yeah. or it might okay. be a public lecture. But the lectures are the, the, um, the kitchen for me. Mm. I mean, it's a huge part of my practice. Yeah. Um, I, lo- I love studying the performance aspect, yeah, right. but also the content. Right. And that's where, that's where it all starts for me. And then I write and okay. do other things based on that. But the, the lectures are where I test it and discover.
0: And then, so, so do, are there times where things will like, you know, split off and it's like, oh, this is just a, a book? Yeah. Or, or, oh, this is, this is going to be a show. Oh yeah, yeah that's, okay.
1: that's the key. So I started working on this storytelling project mm-hmm. and I realized that the most interesting part of it to me was the part about multi-sensory design. And
0: uh, so now
1: that's a separate project. Oh, but
0: those were originally... It's, yeah, it's still thing. a chapter yeah.
1: in the storytelling book. Oh, interesting. But it's the basis of this much bigger, huge yeah. exhibition at Cooper Hewitt with its own book that's more... Sciencey and serious, whereas my storytelling book is very um, how to, right? Very uh, fun and okay. kind of humorous. I
0: have I have one more question, kind of just about you and your career, mm-hmm. and then I want to step back and just talk about the profession at large for a little bit sure. to kind of wrap things up. But something that's been very amazing to me watching you is how, in all of your roles, you have to have your finger on the pulse of kind of the design zeitgeist at the moment. And you seem to do a good job at that. You know, whether it's a show and you're kind of pulling these obscure designers from around the world or in you know, a lecture to students mm-hmm. and you're connecting something from history to something that a designer did, you know, last week. How, w- like, what's your media diet like? Or how do you kind of consume these things to make sure that you're kind of staying yeah. current?
1: Well, I never feel like I'm current enough. Really? I mean, it's very challenging. Um, I, you know, I, I do a lot of blogs that uh, push oh, you know, newsletters, yeah, like yeah. And oh and
2: yeah.
1: Core 77 and yeah. AIGAI on oh, yeah. design I really like. Um, it's nice that. Yeah. And I don't throw them away. I look at them every day, and that really helps. Um, I go to museums but that's slow you know yeah. and there's shows all over the world I can't <laughs> go to them all yeah and all the fairs I can't afford that people think oh curators are on airplanes all the time going right. to the art shows yeah. like the now, maybe the museum director yeah. is doing that but the curators we have no money
0: yeah
1: so we're absorbing it through um through the media and then how do you
0: because I, feel like I... I try to do that also. You know, I subscribe to, you know, 50 blogs or whatever. I get all the newsletters. I follow, you know, however hundred people on Twitter so I can be someone that keeps up. But how do you, and this is a hard question, so I apologize, but how do you retain it? Or how do you six months later are working on something and are like, oh, I saw that thing on, it's nice that Oh, I take ago.
1: notes. I take okay. obsessive notes. Okay. Okay. Um. There's no other way. If, so, if I think something's important, I, you know, put it in a file. I use Google Docs, which okay. is actually yeah. kind of clumsy, but it works for me. I, I take notes on everything I read. I take notes on every conversation. Okay. And it, you're foolish to think that you are going to remember yeah. anything yeah. if you don't write it down. And so by writing it down, then I can find it. And one of the things I'll do when I'm working on then writing is mm-hmm. I'll reread my notes on a topic. And it's just oh, okay. amazing how much knowledge is in my notes. That's knowledge that I really worked on getting. Right. You know, that right. wasn't, so,
0: you weren't keeping in your head. Yeah, but, but that I
1: worked to get. So I feel like I have
0: yeah. legitimate yeah. to then write That's about it and
1: co- incorporate it, of course, with sources and all that. It's very important to keep track yeah. of where you find everything. But that's really fun to go through right. and read your notes and go, oh, that connection. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then
0: that, those notes feed into everything that you're doing. You know, those get added into a class talk. Or, oh yeah. You know, it's They're, like, oh, this gets quoted in a book or.
1: Yeah, and I it's all on Google Docs, so I can yeah. find it for yeah, any and search topic. it. And yeah. but I have you know okay. files on okay. topics that are important to me, but. It's all there, and yeah. it's great. I, you know? like,
0: I love that yeah. kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, people use Evernote. Yeah. But that I happen to use Google Docs, and it, I find it pretty, pretty effective. Okay.
0: I want to step back and just – I have a couple questions, just kind of general questions about kind of the design industry, design mm-hmm. profession, design culture at large. Um, you know, in this podcast kind of like at its core is about design criticism, and that's kind of a loose word right. that I even feel like as I've been doing this maybe doesn't always feel Mm -hmm. right um
1: maybe design culture design design
0: discourse has found has seemed much more more interested and more related to what I'm interested in and that's exactly what I was going to ask you was Mm -hmm. how has the design discourse changed over the course of of your career so you mentioned kind of being in college and having that interest in critical theory and there wasn't A lot of people talking about it and then I don't know why I'm answering this question for you and then in the 90s there was this kind of big interest in it for a while and now you know the New York Times publishes stories on you know Dubai having a new typeface or you know that a company like redesigns a logo how as somebody who's kind of worked through all of that how have you and have been a part of that discourse the whole time how have you felt like it's changed
1: um, yeah, well, it's gotten much broader. Yeah, so the 90s was really exciting with Emigre yeah. and all the debates and arguments and a sense of tension and yeah. the whole designer as author. Right. All those things were very exciting to be part of and to participate in. And then the internet, all, you know that, that right. conversation sort of went away and the visuals that went with it be, sort of went out of fashion. Um, but now, yeah, it's become more of a public, you know, yeah. more accessible. The design field has expanded so much, the whole user experience and right. interaction design. It's like some of it I don't even know, like, is that design? Yeah,
2: yeah. It's like,
1: well, what did you do? You made a, a, a chart saying right, like right. What you, how users open an account. It just seems so, like, minute, and yet it's so necessary and yeah. so part of.
0: Has that, has that kind of opening of the discourse changed your work or how you think about your work at all?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think one of the fundamental, you know, the whole notion of the experience economy yeah. is, to me, very important and a big part of my thinking about the 21st century. And what that is is really the notion that everything we – encounter we encounter with over time right and i think design was always thought of as more of a thing yeah but when you consider that even a poster is perceived over time that your eyes are moving around
2: oh right (laughs) creating a kind of little
1: movie of a poster you never take in the whole thing at once our vision is just in constant motion and so that element of time is very connected to digital media and yeah the way we actually interact with anything is temporal and experiential
0: yeah do you does it change how you think about kind of what what you're going to write about or what kind of show you're going to put on because there's just this consciousness that people are just aware of it now
1: Absolutely so my storytelling book is really going to be a great book for people in user experience cuz Oh interesting. About yeah. This dimension of right. time and right. different models and paradigms is it a circle is it a triangle yeah. you know is yeah, it a yeah. square <laughs> Yeah. Like how are you going to diagram the yeah. experience of time in a project, I think it's super interesting. That is, that's really interesting. And it goes beyond design as like choosing fonts and more about this temporal experience. I like that a lot. And then my exhibition about the senses is called The Senses Design Beyond Vision. Uh, And it's about the haptic and the audio and the the texture and the body. And that really takes you beyond the static object and into an experience over time.
0: Do you, I, I have two questions, again, and they're kind of related. Um, you talked about how exciting that the 90s were. Um, and I've talked about this with a lot of people, and I'm trying to be, I've talked to a lot of immigrant people, and, you know, I've, I've, anyone who has listened to a half dozen of these episodes has heard me say this, so, uh, you know, I'm, it's probably getting annoying, but I, I try really hard not to look at that Era with you know kind of rose tinted glasses is this kind of amazing.
1: It was time.
0: Yeah. okay. <laughs> do Do you think that's possible again, or do you think that type of really rich, deep discourse around graphic design is possible in two thousand seventeen?
1: Well, it's probably happening with digital media. You know, I thought yeah. like there was a lot, maybe five years ago, about the nature of publishing, right? Different models for how a publication could organized. That's true. Yeah. Be organized. Yeah. It was the social book and the, yeah, um, the open book. Right. and Participatory. Good, movie. Yeah. I think it is. I think there yeah. is a really interesting. That's a discourse. good point because
0: that's something that's actually come up a in a lot of the other interviews that I've done. That that you know, and we were just saying it. There's more people talking about design than ever before. The difference is that it's just scattered, you know, it's everywhere. There isn't a emigre or, you know, these kind of central places where people can go to, to kind of get that. What, I, I'm, I'm very curious, this is a question that I've asked everybody that I've talked to. Uh, what are the the kind of issues or the topics or the subjects that you think are important for designers to be discussing or to be a part of the contemporary design discourse or contemporary design criticism. What are the things that are being overlooked right now that, that we should be talking about and writing about and thinking about?
1: Well I'm really interested in, in design for inclusion. Mm-hmm. And that can mean for disabilities. It can mean yeah socio economic uh globalism. Yeah. Yeah. Broader use of language. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think that's super interesting. I think that book, Ruben Pater's book, yeah. The Politics of Design, really gets at a pulse. Yeah of a different way of looking at design as not so Eurocentric. Yeah. So I think that's really important, really interesting. Of course, sustainability right. is extremely important and has so many uh, implications for designers. Um, transparency, surveillance, yeah. all yeah. that, yeah. I think is very important, uh, the truth, the right. relationship that designers have to telling the truth yeah. Yeah. is of great urgency. There's so many things yeah. for us yeah. to touch upon.
0: Yeah, I feel like that's just been the, the recurring theme. What, what has ended up becoming the recurring theme of these interviews is that, that the design discourse can't, as, as important as it is for us to be talking about colors and typography and layout, we can't end it there. We have no, to be talking about no. all that stuff. Behind it and, and in front of it too. And often that's the stuff that you know kind of goes missing in the in the mm-hmm. in the discourse. My last question is is hopefully an easy one. Um, but I'm interested in who are the writers or designers or curators or even you know books that have really kind of influenced you and shaped how you think about all of these things or the people you uh-huh. keep turning back well, to. Well,
1: Mark Wigley and Beatrice Colomina, who are my yeah. generation, yeah. continue and have for my whole career. I've always watched yeah, their I work. So they're top of my list of brilliance. Yeah. Um, and I, I love, you know, Ruben Pater's book mm-hmm. as, you know, a, a less in depth but a really nice statement of what can be.
2: Yeah.
1: So they're kind of on two poles, yeah. you know?
2: Yeah,
1: Um What else? I, I'm a big fan of Johanna Drucker, who's also in oh, that yeah. generation. Um, you know, Michael Rock, of yeah. course. I'm trying to think of people who are younger.
0: Yeah, well, that was going to be, I was going to yeah. add so that. So Ruben Pater. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There isn't anyone yet. No one's doing it. No, I'm sure. I'm
1: sure. You know, but it takes time to to get the voice, you know. Yeah. And so I think.
0: I mean, and it comes back to kind of what what we were just saying where it's like, you know, you see something like, is that even design? So much of of, my opinion is so much of some of the good design writing maybe wouldn't even seem like it's about design. You know, well, I think Rob, it's about. Rob
1: Gianpetro has written some interesting things. Yeah. Um, that I've re- you know, that I have followed, and uh, obviously the dot dot dot. Yeah.
2: Oh, right. Yeah. You
1: know, that's very high level. very yeah. Difficult, yeah. dense material. Um, David Reinford. Yeah. Incredible. So that's you know younger people. Very ambitious writing. Okay. Oh, yeah. and like Manuel Lima, who writes about information design. Oh,
2: I don't think I Oh, well, he's
1: fantastic. Um, I don't think of him so much as a writer, as someone who has curated and made sense mm-hmm. of oh, okay. information yeah. graphics.
2: Oh, okay.
1: Incredible. And he writes well, yeah. but it's about yeah. pulling together the story of the history and the okay. future of know. everything. Yeah, Manuel Lima. Okay. Amazing.
0: Ellen, thank you so much okay. um, for doing th- I'm so glad that we finally got to sit I down and, and, and do this nice. and and thank you. You know, I didn't want, I obviously didn't want you to be like the first person that I talked to uh, because Aww. you were also, you know, like the advisor for this project. So thank you. Um,
1: it was very nice. You know, for this. And so then so
0: just fun. also like, thank you for, for like these last two years and for, <laughs> for help. Like your fingerprints are all over this project Aww. in different That's ways. Nice. And so I think it's a better project. Uh, because of you and because I was here. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, it's amazing what you've done. And I know you'll do more.
0: This episode was recorded on May 22nd, 2017 in Baltimore, Maryland. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for
2: listening.